Hello and welcome. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Shiloh Logan. We started Latter-day Contemplation to largely explore and document our journey of study and faith as we seek to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in anything that we're going to be talking about, but what we do have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to live a life of peace for ourselves, our families, and our community. We love that you are here, and we hope that you find value in this discussion to enhance and strengthen your own discipleship of Jesus Christ. So, Riley, we are back with our third episode. I'm really excited. We, uh, I messaged you a little bit ago and asked you what was on your heart, and you had talked about being born again, and that that was something that you've been talking about. So I, I was like, wow, that's a that's a fascinating conversation to have. Let's do it. Yeah, I uh, I was having actually a talk with another buddy of mine, and uh, I didn't have any one specific topic I was concentrating on at the moment. I was reading No Man is an Island just on my uh, audio. It was an audio book listening to that, and my buddy pulls up in his truck, and we ended up launching into a 45-minute conversation about spiritual rebirth. And um, boy, I thought that's a great topic to explore a little deeper, to spend some time on like you would in Electio Divina. Or, or in an extended conversation like we're about to have. And, and I think it dovetails nicely with things that we discussed last episode and uh, the approaches to the, the Beatitudes that we were talking about. Well, I mean, the, the spiritual rebirth is kind of the, the outset or one of the first things you'll try to do when you're looking at uh, applying the Beatitudes in a sequential order in your life. And so I thought, yeah, it's a great conversation to have. So let's do that. <laughs> I agree. It's putting uh, putting first things first. I I find it fascinating how there are so many symbolisms and so many aspects of the gospel that we talk about that are derived from the Beatitudes that I had never considered before. And only really diving into the Beatitudes have I begin to see the doctrines of baptism coming out and of, of how that even came about as an idea. You know, in the Book of Mormon, we really don't have that as a thing until Aunt Alma does it in the Waters of Mormon, and then it kind of continues on after that. But even Alma, when he introduces this thing into the people's consciousness, it's not really even seen as like a commandment, as it were, but mostly almost like this this inner swelling of of his discipleship that's coming out, and, and he's like trying to reason, why why would we be doing this? And his conversation is is such that people are creating this sacred space and baptism becomes like the next the next step of that doesn't it almost feel like almost spontaneous you know they happen to be by these waters <laughs> <laughs> and they're like well what do you have against it i mean i guess nothing i mean and, and it's kind of this symbol it becomes this symbol of their uh, dedication or uh consecration of themselves um and it just it kind of happens that way. I, and I'm not going to say there wasn't some kind of divine guidance about it or whatever. I'm just saying the way it's phrased and the, and the way the the text reads is it's very spontaneous. Don't yeah, you? I think exactly the same way because of how Alma is approaching this conversation. And it's that phrase, what have you against this? You know, it's it's what have you we against doing this and applying Joseph Smith. So Joseph Smith had this grand key of scripture, right? Where he he talked about if we want to understand scripture, try to understand why are they saying this? What question led them to saying this? And in trying to apply that to Alma here is like, why did he say that? And it opens up, at least for me, this idea that they're sitting there at the waters of Mormon and 
he's like, hey, everybody, let's go out there and, and get in the water and be submerged in the water and, and use this as a symbol for this thing that, is, that we're all experiencing. And some person on the side is like, why would we do that? <laughs> like, why, why would I want to go in there and get wet? Because this is not an idea that is common to them. And so he's like, well, we're experiencing this and we're experiencing this and, and you've already wanted to do this. These are things we've already talked about. Well, why wouldn't we want to go out there and to symbolize this in some way? And and people are like, all right, <laughs> that's that's the way. It that's comes. how it feels to me. Yeah, too. that's how it kind of presents yeah. itself. And I find that is fascinating as far as contemplation goes, because you have these people who are simply learning to sit and to be with the divine, and there is this this emanation from their discipleship that leads them to wanting to do something physically to express what they're feeling inwardly. Yeah, and I think what we're getting at too is is the order of symbolism here is sort of reversed. The the baptism becomes a symbol of the rebirth. When we say when when you read the scripture and it says born again and people interpret that as as a symbol of baptism, that's kind of backward. It, it, baptism is the symbol of the rebirth. And and so you get a sense of that, you know, when, when the saints were coming across the plains after the after Joseph Smith was was killed, and a lot of them wanted to be rebaptized when they arrived or you know, and and that was kind of that same thing. It's like, okay, we're starting fresh. It's a rebirth. It's, to them, baptism as much an ordinance was also just a symbol of of being born again. And and we don't do that anymore as much the the whole rebaptism thing, but um, we do things in other ways that are similar to that that can be symbols of of being born again, uh, whether it's a sacrament or whatever. But getting that order correct, I think, is is good from a, a sense of being able to interpret correctly what the what the purpose and point of this whole stuff is, and get to the real meat of it rather than just indulge in a symbol. Yeah, exactly. Because I, and I've said this before, but there is this thing in our culture and I don't think it, it's not wrong. And so I don't want to express that it is wrong. I think it's actually beautiful that we participate in a lot of rites and rituals and ordinances and symbols. And we have the experience of participating with those symbols. Like for instance, we'd participate with the sacrament and that sacrament is a, is a, experience in and of itself to partake of it. And it's a wonderful experience and one that's extremely powerful with the more intentionality that we give to it, just like every symbol is. And with the temple and its symbols of the baptism and of being initiated into God and being empowered by God, and then finally sitting in contemplative moments there into the celestial room, these are all symbols that we can participate in. And they are experiences in and of themselves. But the fact I think is a lot of times we miss as a culture is that these are symbols that represent something else. A real thing. A real thing, right. And so we are spending our time focusing on the symbol. And while I think that is a beautiful thing is because when we are sitting in the symbol, we, we do contemplate God, right? Whenever someone says, I go to the temple and that's a place where I can feel the spirit and I can feel God's peace. And I can feel that. And that's incredibly important that they've opened up that sacred space for that kind of pondering and contemplating to go on. But yet, what goes on in the sacredness of the temple is still symbolic of what our lives are supposed to experience outside of those sacred spaces, that we create those sacred spaces 
in our own lives all the time, every day. And that we are actually supposed to experience in our regular life what is only experienced symbolically in the temple. Yeah, and I think there's a real purpose to those symbols, especially early on. Some of what the symbols actually represent are too deep of uh, topics or, or doctrines to really delve into and understand when you're in your spiritual infancy, whether that's a literal infancy or, you know, whether it's just a spiritual infancy, they can be deep and tough to comprehend. And so the symbols become a placeholder so that we can grow up within a tradition where ultimately you start analyzing and looking a little deeper at the symbol to find out, well, what, what's really behind it? What am I supposed to be doing with the symbol? It's not just a matter of being dunked underwater and having hands placed on for that or partaking of this symbol or that symbol or this token or that token. There's something behind it that we're meant to find out what that is and then experience that. But in the meantime, those symbols become a placeholder. The mistake we make is leaving the placeholder as the ultimate end. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting that, is that we leave the symbol as the thing in itself, that that's what we were supposed to experience as the thing in itself when, it, you're right, it's just the placeholder. I like that idea. And as that, I've expressed it before in multiple cases of an instance I have, because it was my first awakening to my own baptism. And it happened several years ago, but there was this one weekend in particular where I knew I was never going to be the same person again. And this voice came within me and it was like, you have now experienced your baptism, or at least what your baptism symbolized. And that was the first time for me that I started to piece together consciously exactly what we're talking about, that there is something beyond the symbol that we are supposed to be experiencing in our everyday life. And man, from that moment, I I, I haven't had a lot of those moments, but when they do come where I was like, man, that's powerful. That's going to change me. I know that's going to change me. It's like that next witness, that next that next time when you feel that voice within you saying, you've experienced it again, and you've experienced it again. And then you instead of just kind of going through life haphazardly and trying to stumble onto these experiences, my discipleship starts to try to seek them out. And that's where I really think that Alma is getting to in Alma chapter 5, when he's talking to the people in Zarahemla, and he's like, you know, you've gone through these experiences, you've had these testimonies, you've done all this. But in verse 26, he says, and now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if you have experienced a change of heart, and if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can you feel so now? And for me, that's this call that these experiences, we are supposed to be intentionally seeking for these experiences all the time. And for me, I found that once I identified, and I just had to identify that this was an experience that I could have, and I could repeat these experiences, and I can experience God consistently, then I could seek these out and have greater confidence in experiencing the divine in this way, so that it's something that I'm actually craving now, as opposed to just letting me letting it happen to me haphazardly. Yeah, no, I think that's good. And the, and the the need for constant renewal and repetition is at the heart of true rebirth, right? So as I was kind of thinking through my mind of, okay, rebirth, being born again, what are some of the related terms or symbols or synonyms or whatever that kind of are, are conjured by that phrase? And for, and for me, regeneration was one of them. Well, regeneration is not a one-time event. That's That's like you got to constantly do it. And then you read this book by Adam Miller, you know, this LDS philosopher guy, and and he's saying, well, we're supposed to be doing this daily. 
It's a, it's a daily resurrection. Wow. Okay. So that too is another example of, of that phrase, born of the spirit or being born again, um, as, as a constant repeated action. We described it as an emptying or whatever as, as that's part of it, but it's, it's repeated. It's got to happen all the time. And the mighty change of heart, if it happens once and it completely changes you, great. That's a good process. Is there more to it? Is there another mighty change of heart you can have about something else? And it's that constant evaluation that is the hallmark of someone who is seeking to be born again. Absolutely. We talked about with the Beatitudes in that how the first Beatitude about being poor in spirit, the blessing associated thereto, and the realization of what God is, is the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew's literary style and how he set up the rhetoric is that the Beatitudes are systematic, but the very last Beatitude is also is to, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, and when men revile us and say evil against us for Christ's sake, that the blessing for the final Beatitude is also blessed for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's the same as the first. This literary style is built as a hierarchy, but then at the very end, it's kind of toppled on its side, and the first and the last are tied together, so you have this loop and the symbolism here is, is that the Beatitudes, just like what you're saying, Riley, it, it's going to happen every single day. We're, we're, we're constantly pouring out. We're constantly being filled. We are constantly relearning mercy and being pure in heart and learning how to be peacemakers. And our lives are so varied that there's going to be many aspects of our life that we're going to be doing this every single day. I had a bishop one time who said, you're never safe until you're safely dead. And and, and I've thought about that, right? It's just this idea that we are constantly going through this process. And, you know, I thought about uh, in in the podcast with Ben, uh, with the Come Follow Me, he had brought up the the Disney movie, The Incredibles, when Mr. Incredible is like, I just want something to stay fixed. I just want it to be fixed and just stay fixed, right? And I feel like my discipleship is a lot that way when it's like, I just want my testimony to stick. I just want it to be like this all the time for me to kind of fill my tank and for it to stay full for the rest of my life. But it's, it's not like that. Well, and you talked about Fowler last time around, and that's a very kind of Fowlerian <laughs> desire, right? That's, that's like, okay, I, I just want to be fixed. I don't want to have a growth mindset. I want to have this fixed mindset that everything is right and good in the world that I understand things, that I can explain things and make sense of the world. And, and this is my reality and I'm, I'm good with it. I'm just going to stick with this. Oh man, but God has no desire for us to be there. <laughs> and kind of no patience for it either, because every once in a while something gets thrown at you and you're like, oh crap. Yeah, my whole reality just got turned upside down. Yeah, it happens. That, that whole phrase, if you want to tell God a joke, tell him your plans. It's, uh, it just, it doesn't work out. It doesn't work <laughs> yeah. out that way. It always changes. And I've learned that that's not just an aside of my discipleship, but rather it's the actual point is that when I wake up in the morning and yesterday and the day before, I'll give you an example is I, I've been in door-to-door sales for most of my adult life. And, and so I did that. I built my own company around it and everything. And so Every day, salesmen go out and they have, you'll have this amazing day where you'll get so many sales and you'll come back into the office and everybody's patting you on the back because you did so well and you're riding on cloud nine. But no matter how bad or how good you did that day, the next morning, everybody starts back at zero. 
And mm-hmm. it's always, and it's this feeling that I came to. And, and I used that, that experience a lot with my, with my discipleship in realizing that every morning that I wake up, it's like, I'm back to zero again, or it's like, I'm, I'm, I've, I want to consider myself as emptied as possible to let God fill me with what he can for that day. And that it's just a process that we go through emptying and being filled every single day until we gain so much confidence. It becomes, you know, I don't like to say that it becomes habitual or becomes like, you know, rote, because that kind of tends to think that there's a passivity to it, but it becomes very intentional. But with your intentionality into it, you begin to trust that even in days when it's painful and when it's not going right and when everything seems to rise up against you, that there is this repetition that you become used to and accustomed to and you can recognize that there's power even in the pain and that God is even in the pain. He's with you there all the way. And I think that's really powerful with this whole, just like what you were saying, every day is the emptying and the filling and every day we're experiencing that baptismal that baptismal rebirth. Yeah, I like that. So, Shallow, one thing I want to do is I want to go and just read the source scripture for this. And one reason I want to do this is because it's so important, at least from my perspective, as I'm doing kind of my practice, which is the Lectio Divina thing, is to dig into the scriptures themselves. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and read this, this section from John chapter 3 that mentions, you know, where John, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and He's a Pharisee, and this is this is how he introduces this idea of being born again. As people are listening to this, just ask yourself, what's jumping out to me? And and that's kind of the beginning phase of Lectio Divina is, is reading and then paying close attention to what jumps out to me. It might just be a single word, a phrase, a verse, whatever. And my invitation would be take that word or phrase or whatever and and really sit on that. Meditate on that. Pray about it. And uh, spend some time listening to see what what wisdom God has in store for you out of that. But let me just read that real quick. So again, John chapter 3, starting right at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he, can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? So I'll just leave it there. The story goes on a little bit, but I, I, I think that's a good place to end. As, as I was reading that, Shiloh, what jumped out at you? I was reading Thomas Merton today, and he has a story that he talks about. It's just a short, brief story. He says, when, you're, when you are in an airplane and you're very close to the ground, he says, you can see the ground moving very quickly because you have a relative sense about things and you, see, and you can see how fast you're moving. But as you rise up into the atmosphere, all of a sudden you lose a sense 
of how fast you're going. And when it says here that the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whether it goeth, so is everyone that is born in the Spirit. You know, it's funny, when just as I'm just beginning to try to rise above the ground in my relationship to God, my life changes very quickly. I see things happening all over the place, and sometimes it happens quicker than than not. And I and I start to expect these really big moments happening all the time. And as I get, as I feel I get closer to God, those like really big moments seem a little bit more further out for me. And but the thing is, is I recognize I'm pro- I'm probably picking up speed with the things that I'm connecting than I ever was before. And in a lot of ways, in the directions that we're going and how we're going, my relation to where I was before is such that I'm, my, I'm, I'm traveling faster towards God than I probably was before, but I don't sense it. And I think for me, sometimes that's disturbing because I, I become accustomed to the quick change and for things to happen really fast. And unless things are happening really quick, I don't, I, I don't think I'm progressing the way I need to. But when I simply sit down, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why I appreciate contemplation as much as I have in the, in the past year and two, is because it gives me a moment to reconnect with the divine and have that experience of recognizing that I don't need my life to change so much. I don't need to know where everything's coming from or where everything's going or how fast I'm going. I can just sit with God and have that be sufficient. And in that moment, in that just that pure moment, those just those few seconds every day, and draw peace and comfort from that. Yeah, you talked about relative speed, and we tend to do that a lot just in terms of looking at time, past, present, future. We, we look at the past and where we were and where we are now, and we think, wow, I just haven't moved that far, or I've moved so far off course, and everything's relative, right? And contemplation, the heart of it is is really contentment. It's being able to sit in your present circumstance, whatever that circumstance is, and just have it be what it is and be okay with it. And, you know, we had a, a friend a couple of days ago that is in a bit of despair in terms of prayer. He's like, you know, how do you pray? Like, I just lost the connection with prayer. And I think one of the real beneficial things that have come out of my own personal evolution over the last couple of years is, is the, the notion that prayer is bigger. And there's there's this whole listening side that uh, is is found in contemplation that allows you to appreciate and sit with truths as they come to you in the moment and uh, just be okay with whatever that truth is. I think the wind analogy is brilliant. I mean, again, this is Jesus taking the most ready uh, example from nature, uh, you know, that first gospel, nature. And applying it to his teaching of Nicodemus, you know, he's saying, pay attention to the wind. And of course, spirit and wind are the same word in in Hebrew, which is just the genius of the whole thing. Um, and he says, pay attention to the ruach, the wind. It, it goes wherever it wants to. And in the moment that you're experiencing the wind, you're feeling it on your face or whatever, you have no idea where, where it came from, what was the, you know, the the originating... Uh, spot because it's an it's an amalgamation of a lot of different winds coming from a lot of different directions and you have no idea where it's going because all the winds affect each other and they move each other in different directions what i want you to do is pay attention to the wind 
in the moment that you're in right now. And, and I love that because that to me is explaining at least in one way, in this symbolic way, what contemplation is really about. And uh, how that relates to being born again um, is a matter for, you know, further analysis or whatever on an individual level. But I gravitated towards that same analogy that you did, um, because it's just a perfect example of the way that Jesus taught. I love that you talked about prayer there, because for most of my life, I've, I've struggled personally with having morning, afternoon, you know, evening prayers. And, you know, getting down on my knees, folding my arms and doing that, I, that's been a, that's been a part of my discipleship. I just haven't cultivated strongly. And it's been a source of a lot of, uh, I, I don't know if guilt or shame is the right word. I think that's, that was probably too harsh, but moments when I don't think I'm doing enough sufficiently and that when I finally did get down on my knees and my arms, I just, it was so awkward for me that I just didn't know how to really pray. In fact, most of my prayers just ended up being like, Heavenly Father, I don't even, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> like, like, do I just stay here for a long period of time? Do I just stay here in silence until something comes? Like, like, what is this? And my solution for that came in a different way. And it came in a, in a way that when I was finally just sitting down, I realized that I had been in an attitude and a prayer with God for most of my, for like most of my life. And in fact, every day of my life in that I have, I have incorporated God into a lot of other things that I'm doing and in how I respond and talk to God. And once I realized that I've, and I think one of those ways that I came to that is once uh, you had started talking about the Lectio Divina and I recognized that I was doing a lot of that automatically. And that that had been a pattern that I had established for myself and I was doing organically without even really knowing what it was. Now, there's some things that I can add to it, knowing kind of that formal structure, but like 80, 85% of it I was already doing. And so I recognized that there was already a huge prayerful aspect to my discipleship that I had already included into my life. And that simply the fact that I had not recognized that yet had caused me to think that I was failing in prayer. In that I was really only ever taught one way of praying, and my mind that I, I've now been exposed to many ways of praying, and that I have been in an attitude of prayer. And that's not to ignore and to say, okay, well, I'm doing this, I don't need to go do that. But what it did is it established a lot of confidence to where now when I'm establishing a, a better a better process of the formal prayer, that now it's actually more meaningful. Now I can get down there and there's this. I just take what I normally do through my day, and now I put that into my prayer. And for me, that that's another type of being born again. It's another type of me connecting and letting the old person who feared or thought less of themselves or who thought they weren't sufficient leave behind that because God's not looking at us that way. It's putting that behind, and it's a re it's a repentance process. And I love the LDS Dictionary's definition of repentance in that it's just seeing God new and seeing yourself new and seeing others new and realizing that we are all doing so much better than what we think we are. A lot of the times it's just to be given the assurance that what we are doing organically 
is actually experiencing God. We just haven't been taught that a lot of the things we're already doing organically is already tapping into the divine. And so we pass by them as if they're just, they're not either important or they're not acceptable to God, or if they are not worthwhile. But all of this is good. It's all good. And so that, for me, a lot of the recognition of what we are already doing is an important part of that whole being born again process. Yeah, and you bring up repentance. I, I think uh, that's another key word, along with along with baptism and, and resurrection, uh, that are one of the aspects or another way of looking at uh, being born again. And repentance, in, in the way that it's phrased in the LDS Bible Dictionary, and the way that you just uh, recounted it, there isn't isn't like necessarily this releasing of of shame or guilt or whatever. It, it's more just seeing things in a new way. And, and one way to see things in a new way is to kind of be born again, right? To, be, to enter into a new type of existence. And, and if we relate being born again to the physical act of being born, which we all can at least relate to in terms of either experiencing it or visualizing it or, you know, seeing it live, um, that's a really powerful process. And, and there's so much that goes on there that relates directly. And I don't want to get caught up in the symbol of it. But I do want to look at the physical act as well and how that how that represents the, the rebirth and seeing things in a new way. So, you know, a baby's born and, and one of the very first things that happens is they go from a dark environment to a light environment. And so even though their eyes are cloudy and, and some of them don't open their eyes immediately and, you know, whatever, but there is a flood of, of illumination. Even, even if it's just through the eyelids that it hits them. And that's got to be a surprising element, but also enlightening or illuminating, right? So that's one aspect. A second aspect is that in order to breathe, they're no, long, no, no longer breathing amniotic fluid. They've got to clear out the fluid. They've got to have, that, uh, have their lungs uh, cleared out. And then once that happens, they cry out. And sometimes it's because they're getting a little slap on the bottom or whatever, but, uh, you know, other times it's just a new experience and new experiences can be shocking, painful, traumatic, whatever. And, uh, so the baby is illuminated. It clears out the old and takes its first breath. It cries out. I mean, that that's beautiful imagery to me as it relates to being born again, because we go through some of these same convulsions when we experience, something utterly new when we're reborn into a new uh, way of seeing things or a new way of doing things. Isn't that fascinating that whenever we talk about this being poor in spirit and the emptying out, the baptism, the rebirth, the, the com- something completely new, it's always the first thing that follows is that there's a type of mourning that goes along with it. I think mm-hmm. it's fascinating. So as you were describing that, that brand new child that comes into, into the earth, it's, it clears all of that out. And it does it, all of all four of my children cried and, and it wasn't anything. It's just, it's a new experience. There's this emotion that comes along, along with that. Yeah. Even though the cognitive abilities haven't really developed a whole lot, it doesn't matter. They're experiencing a change that is shocking to them. And so they've emptied out whatever it is they had before, whether it's the physical fluid or the feeling, the warmth, the darkness, whatever. They've emptied all of that out. They're pouring that out. And now they're experiencing something that is 
the quite opposite side of the spectrum and they're, and the first thing they do is cry. Yeah. It's a morning, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of the times I do this myself personally by getting rid of old narratives. When I find that I'm not living a life where something is happening, where I feel like I'm losing something, I'm actually becoming more accustomed now to even desiring that moment when I'm feeling I'm about ready to lose a part of my identity that I've held on to for so long. Because there's a little bit of excitement, even though there's pain in this new experience, I'm losing part of myself that I know it's on the other side of this. And it's going to be, I'm going to be filled and, I, and I'm starting to have more and more confidence on the what's on the other side. And that has been a wonderful realization to have. And I am so far from perfect in how I do this, but at least I'm beginning to have a recognition that this is the case from my, from my own walking with this. And so, yeah, that baby analogy, I feel like I'm in my infancy. I feel like sometimes in my, my discipleship, I'm doing it right when I feel I'm consistently in my infancy, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm for as much as I love to read and have these experiences and to be able to talk and to share about it, man, I feel, I feel just like a newborn in all of this. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, if, if you're committed to the process of rebirth be, or, you know, being born again, that's a process that you begin to yearn for. You, you get excited and exhilarated by the prospects of the new thing. And uh, I'm not saying the new thing in terms of devaluing the old. I'm just saying it, new experiences become exciting rather than scary. Yeah. And you start looking forward to them. Yeah. As part of your growth. That's right. So you and I were talking before we started record about this concept as part of the emptying and as part of this rebirth process that, you know, you had brought it up with Meister Eckhart before that he says something to the effect that in this process of repentance and of coming to God, that we even have to give up our, our concept of God or that we have to give up uh, not, not necessarily belief in God or that there, is, there has to be something in a relationship with God where we, we have to leave behind our old concepts of God in order to experience what he really has for us. And, and really, yeah, I think really what he's getting at is the ownership of the concept coming from us. It's egoistic in, in some sense, right? He's not saying that the concept in and of itself is wrong. All he's saying is, um, you know, and let me jump, let me jump back a little bit. In Philippians, where, where this phrase emptying out from the Greek actually comes from, is, is a word where, is a, a phrase where it says in, this, in the text that Jesus made himself of no reputation. And the word, the specific Greek word for that, translates to emptied out. And that's where this comes from. And so what, what, we're, what we're looking at there is the egoistic attachment to our own ideas and thoughts about, uh, about things replacing the thing itself. Okay, so we have this conception not only about God, but just about anything. Okay, you, you have your conceptions about things, and they're all informed by our own experiences, judgments, biases, whatever. And to the extent that that conception replaces the reality, Meister Eckhart says, you have to release all of that. So in the literal sense, what he says is you have to uh, release the idea that your God even exists. Well, he wasn't an atheist. I mean, he was a monk. He was a mystic, a Catholic, uh, a theologian. What he was really trying to get at is this idea that your conception that is born of your, 
your own biases, judgments, the things that inform you, you have to release that to open up space for the actual to replace it. So instead of your conception, you're making space for the actual. And, and that's the process of emptying out as you get closer to the truth of the actual thing when you release what you believe about it. And that, that's not a rejection. He's not asking anyone to reject the reality of the thing as it is. He's asking you to, to reject or release your idea of what that is. And it's nuanced, okay? I get that. But, and this is why he was persecuted somewhat. I mean, he was in danger of inquisition for this because people took him way too literally. Oh, you're saying God doesn't exist? No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is your God, your idea of God doesn't exist. So clear out that space and let him exercise his own free will within you. But that can only happen when you're empty. You can't full full vessels. You can't fill full vessels. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> so the vessel has to be empty in order for the actual thing to be able to fill it. And so that's what, that's what he's getting at. That's uh, the pouring out or the emptying out of our own will and having it replaced with God's will. Isn't it interesting how much our view of God informs the rest of our opinions and that our opinions is what forms our view of God? It's like there's this tautological relationship that we have with God that Thomas Merton recognized when he said that so much depends on our idea of God, yet no idea of him, however pure and perfect, is adequate to express him as he really is. That it's our idea of God that tells us more about ourselves than about him. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, we constantly make God in our own image, don't we? Right. And that's Voltaire. I love that quote by Voltaire where he's like, God created man in his own image, and we have certainly repaid him with a compliment. And so mm -hmm. we, are, we are constantly making God in our own image that it's we project our own emotions and feelings and fears and the way that we are informed by our world onto him. And then he and then we see what he does to us in the same light. And so it's like this cyclical pattern where we are always self-justified in our own views. And it's always amazing how much God agrees with us, right? Because we always see ourselves in God, God and everything. But there was this quote I ran across that said, uh, is from Bishop Gene Robinson. And he said, it's funny, isn't it, that you can preach a judgmental and a vengeful and an angry God and nobody minds. But the minute you start preaching a God that is too accepting, too loving, too merciful, too kind, well, that's when you're really in trouble. Because we, we as a culture and a civilization, we're informed by all of these opinions about who and what God is that justify our social narratives, that our social, our socio-political, our socio-religious, our socio-economic narratives, they are all informed by this concept of God that has to be an angry, vengeful, judgmental, spiteful God. And that if we simply look at him as being too loving and too accepting and too forgiving, then our fear is that just we're going to all end up being in apathy. Because if God's just too merciful, then everybody's just going to go out and do whatever they want to do. And we always have a caveat as to why God can't be too merciful. And I think that's fascinating that we, we have those projections on, onto God based on our own fears, because we tend to look at how if we treat other people with too much mercy or too much love or too much acceptance, that they would do whatever bad, they would continue to whatever bad behavior we think needs Take to be Take advantage changed. of us. 
Yeah. Yeah, they would take yeah, exactly. They would take advantage of us. It's more than they'll hurt themselves. It's more that they'll hurt us as a result. It's a selfish desire to have to project those things upon upon God, those ideas of justice and, and you know, the law and all that. So it's 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 our purpose or our motivations that want to project upon God those attributes because we have fear of the the mercy side of things, right? If we're too merciful, then we'll get taken advantage of. We'll lose our property. What I mean, one one example right now in the news is this McCluskey couple over in uh, St. Louis. You know, some protesters came into a private gated area and were on their way to the mayor's house. And well, the mayor's neighbors were these these attorneys in St. Louis, and the attorneys uh, came out with with guns. One of them, and I. I can't, I mean, it looked like an AR-15, but I have no idea. Anyway, and then the other, his wife came out with a pistol and they're waving them around, you know, and pointing them at people and then pointing them at the, at each other, <laughs> ironically, uh, <laughs> inadvertently. And they're just, they're kind of like fast and loose with it. And the crowd's uh, getting kind of uh, more antagonized. And so maybe they're saying some things that uh, are threatening towards them. And anyway, it's this vicious cycle of, of uh, escalation. But uh, the reason I bring that up is because by applying mercy in that situation and and whatnot, yeah, you you might have your property vandalized or or stolen or worse. Who knows? And so the identification of a God who's a God of justice uh, protects us in our own actions as we defend the things that, you know, our treasures, essentially, as we defend our treasures. Yeah, I, I see that. I see that a lot, man. That is, I see that in myself a lot of the times in wanting to try to cling to the security that I built up and around myself. And it's not just financial security, but it's the security of the stories that I've built in my head and the justifications that I've, I've built as the way things are. And, and going through that whole process, it's just, it's it's uh it's a hard thing to get rid of. It's a hard thing to be able to just sit with letting God be God and letting me try to come into his presence as opposed to trying to make God fit into whatever box makes me more most comfortable and doesn't doesn't require me to change. And when I you know I think for the longest time when I thought about change, when I thought about this born again process, I always thought about things changing my outward behavior. You know, it's like, am I going to have to start, you know, getting up extra early to do this? Or And it was always about my actions. But more and more, I'm beginning to look at change as, as an inward approach that I have to start to, it's a new favorite word of mine, but to surrender. That there is a surrendering that happens. And I think that in the suffering and sacrifice narratives that are inherently attached to every discussion of identity... And identity is an uh, inherently important conversation to have in this conversation because of how that's what repentance is. It's a shifting of identity. We see God differently, we see ourselves differently, and we see each other differently. And that the suffering and sacrifice narrative that is inherently tied to identity because our strongest identities that we have are rooted in the things that we have suffered through the most. Those are the moments when the emotions are the highest and where our identities of suffering and sacrifice solidify the most. And what I've noticed is that there is even something deeper than the suffering and the sacrifice. 
And that is the surrender. That suffering and sacrifice is supposed to get us to recognize the principle that all we're supposed to do is surrender. It's the surrendering of everything that we are so that God can fill us with what with the knowledge of what, of what we are. And this goes back to President Benson's uh, famous talk that God can make us more of what we make of ourselves, that the world works from the outside from the outside and God works from the inside out. And that he changes the inner nature who then we go out and we change our, our external worlds. And so this, uh, yeah, to see God differently and to surrender my concept of God. And, and you and I were talking about with Meister Eckhart is, is I had asked you, I said, so is this like a Descartes, like, like the cogito, the, the, I think therefore I am. And I liked your reply when we were talking before. And that was like, no, that's, that's the ego side of it. That's where thought begins with us. I think, therefore, I am, because Descartes was trying to reject, as a matter of skepticism, his entire base for knowledge, and then just to build up systematically from there. But he begins with the self. Whereas what Meister Eckhart's talking about is to try to empty the self to allow God to manifest himself as he is. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the ultimate reality. When we release our own conceptions of what reality is, release them completely, and we become that that blank slate, that tabula rasa, when we become empty, then the reality can fill the empty vessel. And so beginning instead of the Cartesian way with the I, he, he, Meister Eckhart's essentially saying, begin with nothing. That's being born again. When you come into the world, you're naked. And, and so... It's it's that beginning that beginning moment of of complete emptiness. So I, I wanted to go um, keep keep playing out and teasing out the analogy a little bit because some of the causes and effects of being born again are either uncomfortable or or comfortable depending on how you approach them. But w- what are some of those for you? The cause and effect of being born again for me, uh, I immediately. Uh, ascribe to that uh, humility and that fresh start. Uh, if you take some of the biblical or Book of Mormon phrases, it's scales falling from the eyes. It's eyes of understanding being opened. It's living by the Spirit. So you've explained some of the things in this process of becoming a new person for you that have, have taken place. But what is that? What is and what does it mean to be born again? What are the causes and effects, both immediate and long term, of being born again? So in, in my experience over the last several years, I've kind of gone through a, a deconstruction period. I've gone through a period where I started to analyze, I, you know, a lot of people say they have a crisis of faith. I think mine is more like a crisis of meaning, but I think even that's kind of a bad way of putting it. I think that's more of a negative connotation. What I've been recognizing is I've been coming into just a different stage of experiencing God is all is what it's been, where I've taken a lot of the old narratives and the old belief systems and the things that I took for granted and at first it was a thought process for me. And that thought process led to another, another idea and another idea until finally I started to recognize that I was living in a world of ideas and I wasn't living, I don't even know how to explain it. I wasn't living inside of myself. I wasn't living authentically to my true nature. I was just living in a world of ideas. And that is when it clicked for me that when I had that moment, when I felt like I experienced my baptism, as it were, 
is that it started to land for me personally at at a at a level inside of myself that was no longer simply a changing of ideas but it was an interchange of my nature and to be honest i don't i don't exactly know how i i came to that or why that flipped for me and why that switch flipped i think in a lot of ways when i've thought about it i've just attributed it to the grace of god i don't know if i actually did anything about it i think just the willingness to be able to finally be in a place where god would God could allow me to make that jump or that I could make that jump in and of myself and that that allowed God to be able to open up that space. And so it was not, it wasn't my grounds for doing anything necessarily so much as I finally surrendered. And it was in that surrender of just like, you know what, I've come as far as I possibly can of myself. And now I'm kind of at the end of my tether. I don't know what, I don't know where else is next. And I can either start to climb up the rope and go back up to where I used to be. Or I can just say, you know what, God, I I don't know what to do anymore from here. Um, All of my stories, all of my narratives, everything that I've built my faith and my discipleship on before, upon really careful scrutiny, has kind of failed me and is not holding or producing any good fruit anymore. But I'm still coming with an honest heart to try to find you. And it's in that moment when that being born again was just I just, it was like the next step. And I had to let go. I had to let go of that tether. I had to let go of the whole thing. And it's scary. It was scary. And a lot of ways I still am in the process of letting go. And I don't know, even know if that's ever going to change because I think life is a, <laughs> I think it's just a consistent day after day after day of letting go. And what has happened on the back end of that is that the more I let go, the more I just experience those moments of just peaceful, quiet contemplation where I have begun to experience God in a completely brand new way than I'd ever had before. And that for me has been more what it's like to be born again every single day than anything that I had ever experienced before. What's the blessing that goes along with um, blessed are those who mourn? To, to be comforted. Yeah. And see, I think what you're describing there is is that exact thing, is that, uh, you know, you've put away the old, you've emptied out, you've let go, and there's that, that tether is like the, the, uh, the yearning for the old, right? It's that, uh, it's that mourning, right? But as soon as, as soon as we do that, we're, we're comforted in the moment. My wife and I are pretty opposite in terms of personality, and, you know, I, 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 suffer from maybe some self-imposed anxiety. If I ever ex- experience anxiety on a, on a high level, it's because I did something myself that is causing me that anxiety. And I recently did that to myself again. And, uh, you know, it turned out good, but it's not something I would repeat even if it worked out. You know, I, <laughs> I hate it. I hate the anxiety that comes with that. And as, as any couple knows, you don't face these things in isolation, you know, and it, at least it, I think if you're doing it right. So, you know, I, I came to her and we're, we're discussing these things and like best case, worst case, all this. And I'm micro analyzing this stuff to the nth degree. Like, Oh, we could do it this way. We could do that. And she's like, it'll, it'll all be okay. And I'm like, yeah, right. Like you can just say that. She's like, yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be okay. And to me, that kind of epitomizes the two viewpoints of this. It's like, one is a, 
is a faith-filled approach where you're emptied out of your own anxieties about something and you're just allowing things to play out. And the other is, what can I do? How can I change it? Well, one of the things with rebirth and being born again is a loss of control. It's absolute vulnerability. A baby being born into the world is the most vulnerable creature in the human race, right? I mean, like, that's it. Anything can happen at that point. You're you're naked, you're small, you can't fend for yourself, you're at the mercy of everything around you, whether it's just, you know, the environment or whether it's people that can harm you if they wanted to. Like, it, you're just vulnerable, completely vulnerable. It's like that moment in Soy Mary and the Axe Murder when, when Charlie's girlfriend says, we're so vulnerable right now, I could stick a needle in your ear and he freaks out, you know? <laughs> But it's true. Like we're so vulnerable to what's around us, you know, and and especially when we're reborn because we've let go of our old security blanket. And so um, what the promise is that goes along with that, which is natural, but yet so few of us are willing to go through the process to actually experience it is comfort. And another word for the comforter is the spirit. And I just think that's awesome. Another uh, another scripture that pulls us up, we've been using this language. Uh, for the for the last several minutes about this being born again and having this this change of heart this rottenness and it always brings me back to uh, Mosiah five when after King Benjamin had talked to his people and he had given them this this wonderful wonderful sermon uh, that really reflects the Beatitudes um, I didn't even notice it for the first time and then a friend of ours uh, Morgan brought it up and he talked about chapter four being kind of like a little microcosm of the Beatitudes. And I was like, I'd never noticed that before. So I had to go back through and find it's it. everywhere. It's it? every, yeah. Now I see it everywhere, but that was one of the first times yeah. I saw it here and it just, I started to freak out. It was amazing. But in chapter five, when he, King Benjamin looks and he wants to know if his people have, have accepted what he's had to say. And now it came to pass that when King Benjamin had thus spoken to his people, he sent among them discerning desiring to know of his people if they believed the words which he had spoken unto them. And they all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us, and also we know of their surety and truth, because the Spirit of the Lord Omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually." And we ourselves, also through the infinite goodness of God and the manifestations of His Spirit, have great views of that which is to come, and were it expedient, we could prophesy of all things. And it is the faith which we have on the things which our King has spoken unto us that has brought this great knowledge whereby we do rejoice such exceedingly great joy, and we are willing to enter into a covenant with our God to do His will and to be obedient to His commandments in all things that he shall command us all the remainder of our days, that we may not bring upon ourselves the never-ending torment, as has been spoken of by the angel, that we may awesome. we may not drink out of the cup of the wrath of God. I love this for so many reasons, but what I what I love the most here is that their source for action wasn't out of duty. Their source for action wasn't out of a feeling of that they had to be com- compliant to a higher authority. It wasn't that they were following some rule and then they were going to see what happened on the other side of it. It's that they had come to a place where they had had a change of heart and it is from the change of heart that they begin to act. And that's where I think one of the biggest shifts in my in my own experiencing the divine has come to is that 
I'm doing my best now not to act because I have a calling or to act because of any other reason. It's that I love God and everything else is simply a manifestation of that. And that's a completely different thing for me in being able to try to make that not just a mental exercise, but have that sink down inside myself. And I feel like we're going in that direction, don't you? Like, I mean, some of the changes that have been made, and, and we still yearn for that tether, right? We want the assignment because the assignment keeps us accountable. And we have to re- return and report, you know, because that's the accountability. The The true motivation behind it, as you pointed out, is the change in heart. It, it's and And... It's the spirit of the Lord Omnipotent. Well, the spirit is the thing that whispers to us and tells us this is this is the thing to do. And we can only listen and hear it when we're empty enough to hear it. And we're not hearing all those competing voices and motivations. And it's a spirit that, that causes a mighty change in us or in our hearts that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. Well, wouldn't we all want to have that whispering all the time? And, and yet we can only do it if we're listening and you know, if we're just, if we get our slip at the beginning of the month and it says, go to so-and-so and this other house and this other house, you know, the, the end justify means uh, and the utility aspect of that is, is fine. It's, it's going to accomplish something, you know, someone's going to get a visit and that's great. When your heart has changed and you're listening to the spirit and you go visit someone, not out of duty, but out of love, um, boy, night and day difference. Everyone's had that experience if you've served in the church at all for any period of time and tried to pay attention uh, to the Spirit. Everyone's had that experience, and it's night and day. Oh, yeah. It's not even the same thing at all. I mean, it is so different that uh, you can't even compare the two. And I I think for a lot of people, for myself anyway, when I used to read this, I would feel down on myself because when I would read Alma saying, you know, can you feel so now? And when I read these people and they've, they've had this miraculous loss of, of evil, but to do good continually, I don't think that feeling stuck with them for the rest of their lives. Like, I don't, th- it's not like they hit this spiritual high and now they got to coast for the rest of their lives. It was, it was a miraculous event. And tomorrow you kind of start at zero. Well, again, with the emptying out and it, and it's not that, you know, our discipleship has to go back to zero and we have to start all over the next day, but it's that we are consistently emptying and we are still allowing God to fill us because every day we take upon ourselves that name of Christ and we take upon ourselves that cross to see what unfolds in front of us and what is presented in front of us. So I think that is a, it's a beautiful journey. I used to, as I said, I used to just want it to that testimony and just make it stick and just make it and just write it out until the end of my life. And now that I know that's, you know, it's, it's down deep inside of myself that that's a pipe dream, (laughs) that that's never going to be the case, that now it's just the daily sitting with God now has been something that is absolutely fascinating to me because I, I've recognized in myself and now I'm beginning to recognize it in others in ways that I had not before that everyone around me has a, such a, a greater desire to do good than evil. It's, it's everyone. And so when I look at this, I see this happening. I, I thought, you know, this doesn't really happen that often, right? How cool would it be living in a society? But this is really us. I really think that most of us live in a desire to do good rather than evil. And we simply need to, to gain more confidence, recognize the things that are already going on in our lives, 
are the hand of God teaching us to experience God and to sit with God in different ways that we're already more powerful than what we already think we are? So uh, you're talking about scriptures that, you know, relate back to the Beatitudes and how you see them everywhere. And as I was going through this this change of heart, rebirth thing, I came across DNC 56, 17 through 20. Check this one out. Woe unto you, poor men, whose hearts are not broken, whose spirits are not contrite, and whose bellies are not satisfied, and whose hands are not stayed from laying hold upon other men's goods, whose eyes are full of greediness, and who will not labor with your own hands. But blessed are the poor who are pure in heart, whose hearts are broken, and whose spirits are contrite, for they shall see the kingdom of God coming in power and great glory under their deliverance, for the fatness of the earth shall be theirs. For behold, the Lord shall come, and his recompense shall be with him, and he shall reward every man, and the poor shall rejoice. And their generation shall inherit the earth from generation to generation, forever and ever. And now I make an end of speaking unto you, even so, amen. And it's that, it's that verse 18, But blessed are the poor who are pure in heart. If that's, if that's not a description of emptying, the mighty change of heart, and then it goes on to uh, being empty, whose hearts are broken, and whose spirits are contrite. That's the, that's the meek, right? That's the humility. It's, a, it's basically another beatitude right there, almost an exact uh, mirror of that. And so it's all over in the scriptures. And I think the, the more we see it and the more we relate each of these concepts we study to it, we start to see the grand, kind of the real plan of happiness that Jesus has in store for us and that it's a daily plan. It's something we can implement on a daily basis. You talked about the cyclical nature of the, of the Beatitudes, how they swing back around to the same blessing they began with. And so it's a daily occurrence. And once we start recognizing it, it's all over. It's in the scriptures. It's in our daily walk. And so when we commit to that process of daily rebirth, being born again every day and being led by the Spirit, we're going to have access to all of those. We're going to actually not have access to it. We will experience the blessings that Jesus pronounces in the present tense throughout the Beatitudes on a daily basis. I really love section 56 there in verse 18 that you just quoted, especially when it talks about coming to the kingdom of God when God comes in power and great glory unto their deliverance. And I, I had a massive shift here uh, several weeks ago when I was reading in Alma 9, and I was studying in Ammonihah, when it's prophesied that when Alma and Amulek are prophesying that Jesus will come and that Christ will come, they, their prophecy is that, and not many days hence, the Son of God shall come in his glory. His glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And then he explains what this glory is. Because it's not, because when we typically see these things in in art, you know, we picture, you know, angels with trumpets and, and yeah. massive things, clouds. right? Clouds. <laughs> That's yeah. how it's portrayed. But he, listen to this. Listen to how he's explaining glory. That the only begotten of the Father is full of grace, equity, truth, patience, mercy, long-suffering. That he's quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. That's the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, that just, that just floored me because for the first time, it's not that God's coming in this external awe, but this internalness of, can you imagine when God just comes and sit, sits next to you in grace and truth, when he's infinitely patient, infinitely merciful, when he's long suffering to every end degree where he 
he is quick to hear the cries. It doesn't say that he's quick to hear the cries of his people when they're justified. It's that, you know, whenever you see a child coming in and they've been burned because they, you know, they reach their hand up on a stove and they burn themselves, you never go over there and, and immediately scold them and tell them, you know, you should have done better. You know, you no, you, you fix what's hurting. You take care of the pain first and then you have the lesson afterwards if it needs to happen. But a lot of the times you only need to have that lesson once and you've already learned your lesson, right? So he's mm. always sitting there just quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. He's not there to scold us. He's not there to reprimand us. He's not there to do all these things. So when God is sitting there and he's in his glory and he's coming to deliver, it's all of these things. And that's what I found is that in my pain and in my coming to God, that part of my rebirth and part of my repentance process and my in my discipleship has been that I've had to let go of of a God that isn't more, and it's not that I consciously thought this, this wasn't a method that I I consciously thought this, but it's that, hey, you know, God can't look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. He's got a place preserved for those in in hell. And and it's just that standard narrative, but it's taken me to a different place where I have to see that the primary essence of who and what God is, is grace and equity and truth and patience and mercy and long-suffering. You know, these are also repeated in DNC 121 as aspects of the priesthood, what the priesthood is. And so when I now sit down, my repentance process with God has been primarily served that my being born again over and over is in learning to see that I've had to let go of old aspects of God that kept me in certain narratives. And sadly, Riley, I've used my concepts of God in how to judge other people before. That because I felt judged, I judged other people. Mm-hmm. And that's a bitter pill to swallow when you realize that your concept of God has been your justification for how you've mistreated other people. And that and it's like, you know what? I need to change that. I need to go back to the basics. I need to empty out. Just like we talked about with Meister Eckhart, let all of that go. Kind of start over, but I can't start over on my own merits. Otherwise, I'm just infusing my own ego back into the mix. But it's just sitting there and then letting God come and letting God manifest and win and show himself as he really is. And that has been, that's given some amazing fruit in the process of peace and comfort and, and just at oneness with God that I had never experienced before. Well, and I think what you describe right there is, is what is cautioned against in verse 17 of 56 when he says, woe unto you poor men whose hearts are not broken. Like the motives have to be right. Poverty of spirit and, and the emptying out done for some selfish reason, uh, it really doesn't accomplish exactly what you think it's going to accomplish. Uh, it says whose hearts are, uh, excuse me, um, whose spirits are not contrite. Okay, so meekness has no attendant blessing if there's no contrition. Whose bellies are not satisfied. How, how can you th- hunger and thirst after righteousness? You know, if, if your motives aren't pure. And so it's, it's all about that motivation. What do you really want out of this? You know, when you're, when you're emptying out, are you really wanting to be filled with the truth of what God really is? Or do you want him to conform to your conception of him? Um, do you want him to tell you the easy, comfortable answer, you know, pat you on the head and say, good job, son. Um, I think we all want that to an, an extent, you know, but, um, the motives have to be right. Yeah, exactly. Well, Riley, what, do you have anything else that uh, is on your heart? 
Yeah. So kind of along those same lines of what I just said there. Humility and meekness being necessary for the spiritually reborn to capitalize on that emptiness. And even the word capitalize is something that's driven by the self somewhat. We're, we're in this absorption versus radiation at all times. I've, I've heard this said, but I can't remember who said it, but we're either absorbing or we're radiating. In this phase of the emptying out and being reborn, uh, like a newborn baby, a baby's greatest time of absorption is at birth and, and moving forward from there, right? And then we gradually start to shift through adolescence, through adulthood, into our middle ages and so on from absorption into radiation. So the student becomes the master type thing, right? So in this phase, uh, humility and meekness are key. Being willing to be taught and refraining from lecturing, you know, and I hope that doesn't come across as me trying to teach someone. This is just a realization more than anything for me personally, that I need to be humble and meek and open and receptive in the absorption phase of this rebirth. And if it's a constant rebirth, if it's a constant being born again on a daily basis, then that, that becomes a new attitude for me going forward. And if there's ever any learning to be done as a consequence of things that I'm doing or saying, it should be by example more than by word. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot too in my own life, that a lot of the direction that I was going intellectually didn't have a heart of humility behind it. My wife, <laughs> I tell this story quite often and, and well, so does she. But uh, when we were, when we were dating, I was, I was pretty well read in everything that the church had talked about, about government and agency and liberty and freedom and, and the constitution and all those things. I'd read all the books that they'd had to write. And so whenever I got into arguments and discussions, I, I would easily win as far as because there's a, it was what called was called the Mormon trump card when I was going to BYU. It's that uh, I, I can basically take, you know, your your Gordon B. Hinckley quote and I'll raise you two Ezra Taft Benson quotes and I'll throw into it a, a David McKay and I'll win the day. Right. I just so long as I had more quotes from the general authorities than somebody else and I can lambaste them with their own religion than I won. It's just it's, it's the Mormon way of Bible bashing. And and so when I was doing that, uh, I was dating. I was dating my wife and she wrote, bless her heart, she wrote me a letter saying that uh, after she had researched a lot of the things that I'd been talking about, that while I may not be inaccurate in what I was saying, that I was completely lacking any spirit of persuasion and that I was extremely prideful and that I needed to, I needed to repent and humble myself. <laughs> and man, when I, when I read that letter, nobody had ever written me a letter like that. Nobody had ever called me out in that way before. And is like, yeah, technically what you're saying is true, but you completely suck at it. <laughs> Yowza. Yeah, it was. How does that feel to be right, but not be effective? Exactly, right? And 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 so not even persuade. And so I was failing in persuasion. I was winning the argument and failing in persuasion. And, and I was doing everything wrong and putting the cart before the horse. And uh, and, and she's she does a lot in keeping me humble all, all the way through our marriage. And it's one of my favorite things about our, our relationship is she's not afraid to call me out on things. But I've recognized that along the way, just like you said, that humility is so, that's so utterly important and, and inherently important in emptying. Because a lot of the times I found myself like, yeah, I'm going to empty today and I'm going to find out something new about God. 
And all I'm really ever doing is just reinforcing my old, my old thoughts and my old narratives. And so it really, it, it's taken a lot of practice. So at what point does emptying become acquiescence? And where do we look to, and how do we look for the source of the true knowledge that's supposed to be coming to us? Because th- I think this, this is, can be perplexing for some people, right? So they think, well, I want to be humble and meek. And so whenever I'm being taught, I'm just going to accept it as, as truth, no matter what it is. You know what I mean? That kind of an acquiescence yeah. or uh, adoption. Uh, or absorption where where we're not recognizing uh, the truth of something we're just trying to uh, exemplify this idea of of humility and meekness and so we're willing to adopt any course or, or any measure as a result of our own humility so how do you how do you effectively navigate that and and do you or do you even try to draw a line or do you just you know scientific method everything i mean how how would you how would you approach that Oh, goodness. That's such a good question. And for me personally, and I really think this has to be done on such a personal, intimate level with the divine of about how, you know, I think the very first step is to learning how to get a baseline with the divine. Um, and, and that takes a lot of time and it's some, it's a lifelong endeavor, right? But once you kind of have that baseline where you think, you know, I, I think this is how God's speaking to me or what have you, then at that point I've taken it to God. And, you know, I was raised with a story from my father about having experiment, you know, experimenting on the word. It was, it's very Alma, what Alma 32, experimenting on the word. And I used to be taught, you know, have, have play games with the spirit. You know, it was very informal. And I think my, my parents wanted to make the spirit rather less formal and make it more something that would just enter into my daily life and would just be as natural to me as anything else. And so I was taught just to play games with the spirit and try to figure out what that relationship was because as an adult, you know, my relationship is that I'm like, when I'm doing things, I think more humbly than others. I sit down and I'm like, it's, it's what lack I yet. And I've talked about that before a lot. And in my experience, man, God has never pulled any punches with me. Um, I've ignored God a lot. I feel like I'm a lot like Amulek in that regard, in that he stands up. He's like, I was never called to the work. He's like, well, I got to back up. I was called a lot to the work, but I just ignored it. And I, man, that speaks to me every time I read it. I feel like that's, uh, you know, the Lord's like, you need to change here. I'm like, I know I'll do it tomorrow. And so procrastination is a big deal with me. And so for me coming in with that and finding humility, I find that whenever I do come to God with a sincere heart and just automatically assuming that I'm the one that needs to change, not God, because that's a thing, God lets me know. And then I've got to be humble and patient with myself to just sit with that for a little while until something else comes. Yeah. So it was kind of a leading question. I understand, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think you, you nailed it. You passed the test. I don't oh. know. I mean, just from my perspective, I think that prayer, this is the, this is the proper place for prayer to, to come into the conversation, right? So, I mean, if, if your if your desire is truly to be meek and humble uh, without being deceived, that's when we ask to be filled with that truth that, that God gives. You know, you've emptied yourself out. You've created the space. You know, you've had your moving sale or your garage sale. You've created the space. And and now the meekness and humility is brought to is brought to God as you put those, those things that you pushed out onto the altar. And you say, okay, fill it up. You know, and I, I think he does respond that way. I think he gives you the right direction. And you don't have to fall victim to the the whims of everyone else's 
you know, desires for you, even, even with a proper dose of humility, you can, you can ask for guidance. And that's part of the contemplation side of things too, is listening and giving plenty of space for listening. You know, two things came to me while you were saying that. First is, is I remembered the story of the Zoramites with the Ramiumptum. And in their prayer on the Ramiumptum, it was all about themselves being more spiritual than anyone else and thanking God for our basic spirituality being over everyone. Their, their belief was very egocentric. It was very self-centered. And they believed themselves to be higher than what they really were because they believed they were being higher than anyone else. And I compare that with the disciples when Christ was there at the Last Supper and he asked each one of them, he said, one of you is about to betray me. And I can only imagine, and I had a moment a while back, and I think I said it before, where I, I was just in awe at each disciple coming to Christ and being so humble and being able to throw, put themselves on the altar so much that each one of them asked, Lord, is it I? That they were, even with all their testimonies, even with all of their experience, even with all of their love, with all of their supposed spirituality, they were still willing to simply allow themselves to possibly be the one that could even unfathomably do that. Yeah, and the answer is yes. Right. <laughs> because it was all of them. I mean, if you if you extrapolate from that question a lesson for all of us to learn, Lord, is it I? Yeah. It's always us. At least the possibility is, right? I mean, Jordan Peterson talks about this, right? We all have the, the capacity to do great good and great evil. And it, it's all about what we allow to influence us and and what we choose to act upon. But the, the answer to that question is, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's always us. There's always going to be a narrative that we can leave behind. There's always going to be a joy that we can experience stronger than was our, our narrative before. And that that's what I find a lot of joy in, is that there is always something greater than my pain. And that usually my pain is very self, self-created and God doesn't care. <laughs> I've learned that God just doesn't really care. He, he's there with me anyway. He's like, you know, you stubbed your toe, you put your hand on the, the hot, hot place. You did, you know, you walked out in traffic or whatever it is. It was you who did it. I don't care. I'm still with you here to comfort you through the whole thing anyway. And that that's those moments also give me a lot of confidence that when I do come to God and I'm like, Lord, is it I? And he's like, yep. <laughs> then, then I'm like, all you're right. Like crap. Yeah, crap. <laughs> all right. I, yeah, you're right. It's me every time. What is it this time? And he's like, it's this. I'm like, that's what it was last week. He's like, yep, still that. And I'm like, all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fun. Well, Riley, I've had a very good I've had a very good time with this conversation. Yeah, I think this went well. I think a good idea and to uh, to just open this up to what the spirit's moving us to do, and I'm sure we'll do this again, and and we'll probably end up right back at the same spot with the beatitudes. <laughs> you know, I, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone, thank you for listening, for sticking around, and uh, and we appreciate any of your comments and your feedback, questions. If there are topics that uh, that you've been thinking about. And you're like, hey, you know, let's let's have a conversation about that. Drop it and let us know. And we'll uh, we're always looking for new topics and people to and see what everybody else is thinking and feeling as well. So until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Riley Risto. Thanks for listening.